0: Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate, bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives, sharing their expertise and life stories, making a difference, one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair.
1: And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. While many dream of living a life of happiness surrounded by deep community connection and living in harmony with nature, my first guest, William Powers, has done just that. He shares his journey in his latest book, Dispatches from the Sweet Life. We'll hear more about that in just a moment. Also today, when our military men and women return from overseas deployment, we know that many have trouble adjusting to so-called civilized life. And today, every day, more than 20 vets give up the struggle and end their own lives. Sean Parnell knows the challenges of vets firsthand. He's a Purple Heart recipient and best-selling author. And he joins us today to share what he's doing through the American Warrior Initiative to help returning veterans. Uh, things like getting, helping them get mortgages and providing service dogs for them. We'll also get a sneak preview of his racy new thriller called Man of War. It's already getting rave reviews and it's not even out yet. (laughs) First, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, William Powers to the show. He's worked for more than a decade in development aid and conservation in Latin America, Africa and North America. His works appeared in The Washington Post, New York Times, International Herald Tribune and the list goes on. And he's a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and an adjunct fellow, uh, faculty member at New York University. He speaks and writes wi- widely as an expert on sustainable development. William Powers, welcome. Thank you, Vicky. And um, I want to say the full name of your new book here is called Dispatches from the Sweet Life. One Family, Five Acres, and a Community's Quest to Reinvent the World. Um, very interesting read, William. Before we get into that, though, I, I want to share just a little bit more of your background with our listeners. Um, you're a third-generation New Yorker. In other books, you shared the story of how you lived in an off, uh, off-grid off tiny house, a Manhattan micro-apartment, and then, of course, your, your latest book, uh, which we're going to talk about in just a bit. Mm-hmm. So what got you started on this path?
2: Well, in 2007, I had just returned to the U.S. after 10 years of working um, abroad in Africa and Latin America, doing conservation work, working to end inequality and promote social justice among indigenous people. But, you know, when I got back, I was sort of depressed because the bigger picture was kind of hammering away at our local successes on these projects. You know, there was climate change, biodiversity loss, the loss of indigenous culture and language around the world. And it just seemed, you know, kind of impossible. Um, That's when I met this very inspiring physician in North Carolina, and she's the one that inspired my book, 12 by 12, and that was about living in a tiny house off-grid. So um, she actually has lived for the past 12 years in this tiny house, and she invited me to go live there for a season at the time. So while I was kind of readjusting to coming back to the U.S. and thinking about these big issues, I had this opportunity to join kind of the tiny house movement and then write about it.
1: Mm. And so what was your takeaway? What was your biggest takeaway from that experience? Well, I think
2: it's mostly a spiritual takeaway in the sense of realizing that, you know, it's the little seed that produces the redwood tree. You know, it's this tiny 12 by 12 house, this decision of this wealthy physician to give away everything and take a tiny salary and live in this tiny house. Um, You know, more simply and more connected to nature in the present moment, you know, that's, I think, the most resounding Message of that. And actually, it's what I took back to New York City um, after living in the 12 by 12 house. And, you know, that's where I met my wife in New York City. And we were living in the townhouse um, that I have in Queens. And we just decided it was just too big. <laughs> you know, and we had too much stuff. Um, and I think it was partially the 12 by 12 lesson that led to moving from this 1,900 square foot house in New York to a 340 square foot micro apartment in Greenwich Village, uh, we got rid of 80% of our belongings and went to this small place. And again, looking for more time outdoors, time out of your apartment in the city, um, you know joining up with cultural creatives, some people who are paying themselves with time instead of money, you know pursuing kind of a leisure ethic instead of a work ethic. You know, I found that like this dual quest that I write about in New Slow City Living Simply in the World's Fastest City, that was the second book in this trilogy. Um, you know, it's its that you realize that this whole other way of living and urban life opens up.
1: Right, right. I've talked with people before who've literally sold everything they have and they've always said how freeing it is. <laughs> and a lot of people can't understand that, but I, I must say I have my urges myself sometimes just to just <laughs> right. get rid of everything.
2: <laughs> well, even if you don't get rid of everything, you know, what you can do is go on a, a little diet of like 10 pounds a day of you know, stuff in your apartment <laughs> for two weeks. And, you know, or little steps like that. Or just seeing, um, asking yourself the question, you know, what's my joy to stuff ratio? Like, how much joy do I get out of each individual purchase that I'm making? Mm. Those types of questions. You kind of like, as we say in Latin America, you know, walking questioning. Each step you take is another question. There's no definitive, like, oh, I have to do what we did, which is get rid of almost everything, but you can find your enough.
1: Right, right. Makes perfect sense. So let's talk about what you mean by the sweet life. Your book is called Dispatches from the Sweet Life. What does that mean to you? The sweet life is
2: not a hedonistic, you know, live for the moment, take everything for yourself type of uh, an idea. It's quite the opposite. The sweet life or la vida luce in Spanish, um, also translated as vivir bien or living well, means humans in rich community connected to nature. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean you know, living in a cave and eating roots and berries <laughs> something right. like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about living in a way that people are people through other people, so not in a very individualistic way, but rather always looking at reciprocity. And the second part of it is that reciprocity takes place in a more-than-human community. Okay? So whether it's in a city where you're very closely connected to urban sanctuaries like parks and, you know, working towards rewilding um, cities like the wild urbanism movement. Um, or if you're in the rural area, like we are now, or in a town, transition town, you know, you're, you're always um, aware of the voices of the more than human world, the bird song around you, the crickets and so forth. Mm. If you're doing agriculture, it's organic. Um, you're producing some of what you eat and so forth. So this is the idea of the sweet life
1: yeah and so you and your wife and a baby in tow head off to Bolivia um, why did you choose to go there? Well,
2: you know for one, we'd been in New York City for five years and although we learned to live more simply in New York and slowly and it was actually quite enriching that whole experience, you know having a child, we were really ready to kind of detether from the kind of work and spend, you know, treadmill that takes place often in this country, as a lot of us know, and find another way of being outside of this cultural matrix. Because, you know, quite frankly, um, if you don't get outside of the routines and habits and the cultural programming that you have, whatever culture you're in around the world, it's really hard to make those deeper changes. So we just thought, you know, on the one hand that that would, would help in that process, and also for our child. You know mm-hmm. and the second thing is we both have a very deep connection to Bolivia going back to 2001 where separately we'd worked on aid in conservation and human rights projects in that country and just had a rich network of friends and communities there
1: and so you build yourselves an Adobe house and you live in what's called a transition town so let's explain what that means
2: well some of your listeners in Washington State will know what it is because there are several transition towns um you know, in in Washington and transition streets in Seattle. The idea is that you just declare yourself part of this movement. And it's a movement towards local economy, uh, more human community closer to others, and organic agriculture and alternative energy. So it's a localism movement that's in contrast to the dominant globalist tendencies where everything's becoming bigger and, you know, bigger multinationals and conglomerations you know how you have Exxon and Mobil and it's not big enough you, know, you get Exxon Mobil like <laughs> force right. one bigger corporation. Right. So this is moving yeah. in the opposite direction towards you know small communities and um, so there's 1600 of these transition towns in 45 countries now and we helped start the first transition town in Bolivia in our town there in 2015 mm. so we joined that movement
1: so it's a very it's a conscious movement then, um, but it's not necessarily planned by a specific organization.
2: Well, it began in Totnes, England, in the southwest of that oh, country, in 2007, and that was the first transition town. So the movement started there and branched out through Europe at first. But there's no cookie cutter idea of what it means. It's like I said. Just finding a couple of people, at least, to form a core group, declaring yourself a transition town in you know, line with these values or a transition street. And then through online resources and through trainings and so forth, you just deepen your capacity to move in these directions. And one of the big things about transition is the core group that starts it agrees to kind of go defunct eventually. Um, the idea is not to establish this in-group. It's to, in some ways, become part of the municipal governance. Uh, which is what's happened in our case.
1: Mm, Interesting, interesting. So you mentioned that physician earlier, and you you talked about leisure ethic, and um, I liked this, I read this in in your work, um, that the physician, he lives in a a 12 by 12 house, expressed to you that um, simplifying one's material life means you don't have to work long hours to buy and maintain a bunch of stuff, which leaves time for open-ended chats, Uh uh, like the kind you have in Bolivia, and doing nothing is a carbon-neutral right. activity. <laughs> <laughs> and we've lost the art of just relaxing and hanging yeah. out.
2: <laughs> right. They have a phrase down in Bolivia called, um, you're an oseologo. It means you're a leisureologist. You know? <laughs> and essentially, the siesta culture, You know, where right. like, you stop at 12 o'clock noon, and then you start again at 2.30 every day. And during that lunch period, it also includes You know, time with your family, time to maybe take a little nap, time to be in nature, and then you go back to work. So it's almost like you have two separate days. Yes. And this idea of, you know, always filling your time. Do you know that American labor has become three times as productive per hour since 1970, and yet working hours have gone up? Mm -hmm. That's why we're called the No Vacation Nation.
1: Right, right. And why,
2: you know, every October 24th, we can celebrate, you know, take back your time day as we do, because... That's the day when the average European can just stop working until the end of the year, and Americans have to keep working right. until the end of the year. Right. Because So in other words, it's a it's a big, deep-seated pro- problem here. And, you know, I just think taking back our time is one of the best things that we can do.
1: I agree. I've worked with companies, uh, and I've seen people afraid to take their vacation because they're afraid not to be there and be visible all the time. And I've also spent a lot of time in the south of France when they used to, I, I don't know if they still do siesta time, but... That used to be a big part of the the lifestyle down there, and I loved that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So, we'll take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue talking with William Powers, his new book, Dispatches from the Sweet Life One Family, Five Acres, and a Community's Quest to Reinvent the World. Please stay with us.
3: Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Seven six one seven.
4: One eighty over one eleven, and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk.
0: One fifty over ninety, and I had a stroke.
2: This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan, or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org.
0: My head to toe, everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association,
2: and the Ad Council.
1: Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Join us live every Monday at noon on Alternative Talk 1150 or stream live from ConversationsLive.net.
0: Exploring new territory every day. This is Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is William Powers. And uh, he's an author, speaker, and expert on sustainable development and spent a great deal of time overseas and uh, in various stages of housing, (laughs) right, William? So I want to um, ask, when you came back from Bolivia, what was the biggest challenge for you to reintegrate into American life?
2: Mm -hmm. You know, one of the challenges is materialism. I mean, let's just put it out there. You know, the average American um, has 17 times more environmental impact than the average Bolivian that's in terms of how many global hectares it takes to maintain our lifestyle and also in terms of the carbon that we're burning. And so when you see that in terms of the you know, massive house sizes and the two cars per family and everything else um, adding up to this big impact, it just feels kind of painful in a way when you spent a lot of time kind of in the rainforests of South America where you've seen them being deforested exactly mm-hmm. for our consumption. Um, And when you see like one indigenous language being lost every two weeks because of incursions of big multinationals like ADM into these areas. So I think it's that kind of disconnect between this dominant lifestyle of the highest GDP country in the world, you know, and a kind of lack of real deep awareness of how that is reflected abroad.
1: Right, right. Now, you had your challenges over there. I mean, everybody does, not everybody, a lot of people dream of, you know, just giving up this um, this materialistic life, if you will, and and going somewhere like you did. Um, but that's not without its own challenges, of course. You um, had certainly a lot of challenges there. Um, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about those, if you would, and what kept you going through those times.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yes, it's one thing when we first dreamed about, you know, ditching our um, good jobs in New York City and moving to this transition town where the Andes meets the Amazon, and you know, we found this perfect piece of land and this wonderful community with people from 30 countries, um, you know, and so close to these big national parks, and this, you know, really ideal situation in some ways. But then, you know, the reality is when you actually move there, and suddenly you have cut your cords, and... You know, we dealt with a lot of problems. One was bugs, you know, not just um, infesting our organic acres, but also our house. And how do you deal with that, you know, without spraying and so forth? You know, another was there's xenophobia there just as there is here. And, you know, I think a lot of it is also that, like, the kind of way we treat immigrants in this country, we as Americans also experience some of the blowback from that when we're abroad in terms of not being treated well you know, at one point um, that I write about in the book, we were actually, you know, taken in and f- fingerprinted <laughs> into a, a holding detention cell and so forth, but experience a little bit of what, it, what it's like, you know. Right. Uh, and then also the fact that there's a certain gentrification that takes place. You know, not that we're trying to do that. We have a long connection to Bolivia. We speak Spanish, um, rich connections on many levels and to the country, including my one of my daughters is half Bolivian. My wife has three or four godchildren in Bolivia. But still, you know, we go down there and you're American. And if you buy land, you're probably driving the prices up for others.
1: Right, right. A number of years ago, um, uh, Thomas Friedman, New York Times columnist, had a great success with his book uh, called Flat World. And Mm -hmm. he argued his philosophy. uh, Every time I seemed to turn on television, there he was arguing his philosophy um, you don't necessarily agree with that, though. So talk to us about that, if you would.
2: Well, you know, the flat world is a monoculture or a mic world where everything gets flattened out by, you know, basically global capitalism. You know, and Friedman celebrates that because it does allow access for some people who were, weren't able to be gaining from the global economy to connect via Internet and so forth to opportunities. But I really don't think that's the way the world works. Even on his own terms, a very small percentage of people are able to engage in the way he's talking about, Um, and most are left out. Um, But in another way, the world isn't flat. It's actually round. I mean, it's literally round. And also it's round in terms of, you know, the texture and hybridity and different cultures. So I don't really subscribe to this modern idea of progress with a capital P that everything's kind of moving from, like, underdeveloped to developed. Oh, how convenient. That's towards us.
1: Right, right. So the
2: whole lexicon, the vocabulary has been, in a sense, colonized. Right. So we look for a different vocabulary around post development, you know, the ideas of Arturo Escobar, um, the anthropologist who talks about um, hybridity and a thousand different responses to what development means. So I love the idea of the world is round.
1: Right, right. And you talk about flow, fair, local, and organic, um, which, of course, we've seen a lot of. Uh, anti-globalism lately, uh, or talk of it. Um, And what's your feeling around flow, fair, local, and organic?
2: Well, yeah, that flow ties in with the transition movement of localization. And, you know, right now you have a huge percentage of GDP going through multinationals and only a small amount going through local entrepreneurs. So it's increasing that, like they did in Totnes, England, the first transition town, where now they've taken 2 million pounds British pounds out of the supermarket chains, brought them to local businesses, and also created their own factories, like a beer factory in that town, run by local people. So, you know, this is not part of the um, reactionary anti-globalism movements that are more right-wing and more ethnocentric right. kind of movements. This is more of like a it's globalizing, um, you know, fairness and freedom and healthy food and all of these things. It's like the farmers' markets in your town and. You know, when you go to local bookstores instead of chains and all of those decisions that you're making on a micro level, but it's like not just you making those decisions, it's the policy realm where you're setting up the incentives. You're taking all of the subsidies out of big companies, like fossil fuel subsidies, and you're putting the subsidies into local businesses.
1: Right, right. Um, so you talked earlier about the importance of raising questions, keep questioning when you're when you're experiencing this lifestyle, and of course the big question is, is it sustainable long term? Mm-hmm. Um, and your view on that is?
2: Well, Vicky, that's a great question. A lot of people wonder about that. Like, is this a utopian idea of localization? Well, for one thing. I'm not saying that there's not going to be a global economy, Of course, there is going to be um, in this other world that I'm talking about. It's a slow and conscious movement in terms of just recentering our economies in the local. So at least not 90 percent multinational and ten percent local, maybe you get up 20, thirty percent um, local economies. The wonderful thing about that is not only do you get to know the people producing this stuff for you, and that you're sharing with in local economies and that you're supporting things in a bioregion, but you become more resilient to climate change. And when we look at the way things are going, if you see some of the latest science on polar ice melt, you know, the loss of coral reefs and everything else that's going on in this massive assault we have on Mother Nature right now, um, we're gonna be forced to localize. Um, you know, right now in a lot of countries, if you look at the statistics, like the same amount of, say, apples that are being exported from England are also being imported. And you can take that for for beef and for chicken and for everything. So it's this massive um, system where the average product is traveling thousands of miles and the same product is coming back thousands of miles, needing lots of fossil fuels to do that. Right. So, you know, we're looking at a world where we can get to just getting that more in equilibrium and balance.
1: Right, right. Uh, you write about how your sister Amy came to stay with you for several months. And um, when you're the, she goes back home, she writes that your nephews have have absorbed a little bit of the sweet life. Um, and I like, you say here, it's um, since the way each individual and family lives, it is unique and ultimately it's not a model, but rather a way of always beginning that mm-hmm. can be practiced anywhere. You change and it ripples outward. And I think that's really key. Um, how how can we impact things around us like that in our small world? How can we make changes without moving to Bolivia.
2: (laughs) Well, the idea isn't that, you know, you pursue the Bolivian sweet life. It's that the book, you know, Dispatch from the Sweet Life is trying to release the question, you know, what's your sweet life? How can you take a step, walk in questioning towards having more harmony with your community and with the rest of nature? So one thing is to have a meditation practice, you know, or a yoga practice or some kind of a spiritual path that gets you out of sort of dogmas and theologies and so forth, but just into yourself, you know, and also connects you to nature. That's one. Um, The other is like taking that spiritual basis and then also finding community, people that are also embracing that. You know, people who are tuning out of or even embargoing some of this um, insane following of each individual election as if it's the most important thing in the world and the media cycle, stepping back from that, going on a media diet and connecting to your local biosphere. And to your community on a much deeper level. It doesn't mean you can't follow current events, but really putting it on the back burner. You know. And then the other thing that you can do is, you know, look at sort of your happiness. Are you feeling good? You know, like, are you are you joyful? And if the answer is no, maybe just look at the deeper reasons for that. And I've noticed, you know, coming back to the United States, we're back right now um, on this book tour around the country. Um, just, I think a lot of people are using pharmaceuticals. Um, or, trying to buy their way out of an unhappiness and creating more isolation um, from their true selves. So I just tell people, you know, just take a deeper look at it. Mm. And it's so easy to find non-corporate ways to connect with others and yourself.
1: Right, right. Well, I'm just a little over halfway through the book. Um, I haven't quite finished it, but I'm definitely going to finish it. It's a great read. Um, Thank you. And somebody on the on your back cover, Richard McCarthy, says it's self-effacing, funny, and strikes at the core of what is missing today. Um, very true. Uh, the book is called "Dispatches from the Sweet Life: One Family, Five Acres, and a Community's Quest to Reinvent the World." And I want to just read a, a couple of lines from the uh, preface here. You say, "Finally, memoir, uh, because this is a memoir, mm-hmm. is not diary." but rather literary art seeking a migration from fact to truth. I hope this book might catalyze reflections, emotions and inspiration in you toward harmony within that broad, inclusive tribe called us. We definitely need more us right now. <laughs> right. And a uh, final quick question for you. What did you, um, how has this changed you? How's, how did that experience change you?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the whole experience of these past five years in Bolivia Experimenting on the creative edge of the sweet life, yeah, you know, I think it's most changed me in that I just feel happier and better and more connected to my family, to the larger tribe of people, my community, and also I feel like I have more meaning in life. I really feel like, and I tell this to students because I also teach university students that you know our territory has been taken away from us by the system. It's kind of forcing us into like this car culture and the separation from nature. Um, so I think the most important thing is that, is stepping back into this more than human world, into this rich life that we as humans have, because ultimately we're mammals. You know, we're, we're mammals in habitat and we're mammals in community. And it's like finding that very essential and basic reality.
1: Mm. William Powers, thank you so much for being with us. Very insightful book and uh, I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Vicki. Appreciate it
1: and you can find out more about William Powers and his work at williampowersbooks.com williampowersbooks.com and this one of course called the uh, called Dispatches from the Sweet Life please stay with us we're going to take a very quick break we will be back with uh, Sean Parnell you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair
0: let's see if i i guess that <sighs> this just isn't working
4: knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing writing it another so what's stopping you maybe you can't find time maybe you don't know where to begin maybe you wrote a couple of chapters then disappeared down a rabbit hole or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book as an award-winning writer and strategic consultant Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today email Vicki at VickiStClaire.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClaire.com. Oh, yeah, that
0: could work. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Claire discusses issues that are important to you, like good health and well-being, finding a new job, and building your business overcoming life's big challenges and making sense out of chaos and living with passion and joy join us mondays at noon pacific for conversations live with vicki st clair see ConversationsLive.net for show schedule and guest information
3: do something different with your spare time give baby animals at paws a fresh start with the assistance of caring volunteers pause helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year join us and save lives Become a PAWS foster care volunteer. For more information, visit PAWS.org or 425-787-2500. PAWS.org or 425-787-2500.
0: Did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 50% 50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer. Know who you're boating with. Wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket and don't drink and boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun.
1: Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Follow me on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair.
0: Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, we are talking now with Sean Parnell. He's the author of the best-selling memoir, Outlaw Platoon. He's a former U.S. Army infantry officer and ranger who served in the legendary 10th Mountain Division for six years. He received two bronze stars, one for Valor and the Purple Heart. He's now CEO of Branding Freedom, a marketing company. And uh, he's also... uh, Author of a new novel, which is not yet out yet, so you're getting a sneak preview. Uh, He's the author of Man of War. Sean Parnell, welcome.
5: Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: My pleasure, my pleasure. And um, you've got such an interesting background before we get to um, the book and talking about um, the foundation that you've organized. I just want to share some of your background with our listeners. so nine eleven, like for many people, it changed their lives, and it did yours too. Because that's when you uh, decided to enlist. I understand.
5: Yes, yeah. I was a sophomore in college. I was I was an elementary education major, uh, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And like many college students when they're new uh, at university, didn't really. I sort of was like just felt like I was drifting. And then I remember waking up one morning and I. I I had a hangover of a lifetime and stagger over to the TV set and turn it on uh, just in time to see an airplane crash into the World Trade Center. And, you know, at that moment, like so many others, my life was changed forever and just became laser focused on serving the country and getting in the fight and being on the front lines and going to ranger school and jumping out of airplanes. I mean, none of this was ever on... My agenda. I mean, I don't come from a military family. It was just one of those things that I, I witnessed that selflessness that many Americans exhibited that day. You know, running into the flames to save people right. that they didn't even know,
2: right.
1: and it
5: just—it just—it just inspired me to serve something greater than myself.
1: Right, right. And at some point, you were medically discharged. You were injured uh, not just once, but several times. I understand.
5: Yeah, this was this was back at, at a time in Afghanistan in two 2000- thousand when TBI or traumatic brain injury was, wasn't even an acronym. So I had gotten blown up in Afghanistan by a rocket-propelled grenade, and I, I fractured my skull a, in a few places. Didn't know it. Uh, ended up healing on its own, and I stayed in the fight. Uh, but after being home for a couple years, I was uh, I was I got diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury and was subsequently medically retired uh, from service.
1: And so coming home for you, um... You know, I said at the top of the hour that the 20 vets a day, more than 20 vets a day, actually, I think the numbers have recently gone up, um, are actually choosing to end their life because they can't integrate back into society for one reason or another. And um, I know through your work, I, I read that you, you want to show that, um, I'm just going to read it here, that uh, it's easy to assume that veterans are damaged or are victims. It's vital that characters... In, in books, in your, the books you are writing, show us how combat vets experience growth, not in spite of their service, but because of that. And that's your whole drive in writing this book, Man of War, which we'll get to later on today. Is that right?
5: Yes. Yes, absolutely. It, it's, it, it's, been, it's been my entire mission since being retired from the military. The whole concept of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, has been something that I've been fascinated by. And to a, to a large extent, I've I thought it's been I, – I always personally believe that it's large, largely a cultural problem and less less of a clinical one, although there are clinical applications certainly that, that we can use to treat it. I just think that only 0.4 percent, less than half of 1 percent of this nation has served during the longest period of war in our nation's history. And guys and gals come back from the, from the war, and they, and they get boots on the ground in America for the first time. Uh, in a year, and they feel oftentimes like an exile in their own country because nobody really understands what they've what they've been through. Right, and so I've been very fascinated by the concept of post traumatic growth. You know, much in the same way that you know when you first start lifting weights in the gym, your muscles hurt, your muscles are sore, but you get stronger precisely because. The weightlifting has damaged your muscles, but you get stronger as a result, right? And I sort of look at post-traumatic stress disorder and, and the hardships that we've gone through in combat as a way to sort of strengthen ourselves and grow from it. And, and ultimately, that's that's part of who Eric Steele, the character in my book, that's the, what he's all about,
1: right? Right. So, share with us, uh, Sean, if you would, what you experienced when you when you came back. What what, what was your biggest challenge?
5: Uh, it was, you know, it was really hard. Um, we were in in combat for four hundred and eighty-five days on the front line, never left. Um, I think harder than most of the combat was the fact that we were extended a day before we were supposed to come home. Now, if you think back to two thousand six, two thousand seven, that was precisely the time in this country where the debate about the Iraq surge was going on. Yes. Like, should we should we even be there? Should we be sending more troops? And what happened was, is the Army decided to to support the surge, and we sent all of our available units to Iraq, which left us basically stranded in Afghanistan with nobody left to replace us. And so I had guys who had already survived a year of hell in combat already come home to meet their families at welcome home ceremonies, who were then notified by the military marched back from marched back uh, to the plane taken out of the grips of their of their spouses and loved ones clutches and brought back to the airplane and flown back to Afghanistan I mean it was hugely traumatic and so for me after it finally made it through all that it was it was hard I remember meeting my family for the first time you know giving them hugs and it was happy all around but it just felt like there was a I was anxious, you know. I didn't know if they'd even recognize me anymore. Right. It just felt like, you know, because the war changes you. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I just felt like there was a barrier between my family and I that, that was insurmountable at the time.
1: And so were you married it, at that time? Thankfully, no. Okay. I,
5: you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wasn't, and I had no kids at the time. I've got three kids uh, now. Um, But it was just... <laughs> It was just like one of those things I felt like I was an exile of my own country until I had another mission. And so for me, finding something that I could serve that was greater than myself was unbelievably helpful for me to get back on the right path. You know, And of course, of course, the war is with me every single day. It's the first thing I think of when I wake up and the last thing I think about before I go to sleep at night. But um, – Because I feel like I'm out there, you know, helping veterans directly, you know, working, volunteering my time for nonprofits and making, you know, doing everything I can to get service dogs into the hands of our ailing veterans. Um, I mean, it helps. It really helps to be out there in the fight trying to help these men and women come home.
1: Right. Your story is very reflective of somebody else I spoke with who's uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest, and he started, when he came back, a farm. His name was uh, Chris Brown, and uh, his organization called Growing Veterans, and uh, it's all about veterans healing through helping veterans and working with the land. It's up in Bellingham. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, My guest is Sean Parnell. His book is Man of War. And you are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us.
4: 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk.
2: This is high blood pressure. Get back on your plan.
0: Go to loweryourhbp.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association,
2: and the Ad Council.
1: This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Mary Moss and Pet Tandem, we cover the world of animals. This week, September 9th, it's a Best and Rasmussen Reset Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen in the studio. Dr. Nels can help with emotional, behavioral, or physical problems, and he can test for allergies, drug, or supplement compatibility and dosages for you or your animal friend. So please plan to call in for your remote session on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150.
3: At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing speeches and much more call us today so you can focus on what you do best and we'll do the rest call 800-495-7617 that's 800-495-7617 conversations live with vicki
0: st clair discusses issues that are important to you like good health and well-being finding a new job and building your business Overcoming life's big challenges and making sense out of chaos. And living with passion and joy. Join us Mondays at noon Pacific for Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. See ConversationsLive.net for show schedule and guest information.
1: You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Talk radio to brighten your day.
0: Going against the grain has never been this much fun. Alternative Talk, 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky Saint Clair, and I'm very pleased to be talking today with Sean Parnell. Um, so, Sean, before the break, we're talking about the importance of um, when you came back from uh, the war of having that mission, because that kind of seems like it gave you direction and, and some grounding there. And um, right. yep, you is that when you co-founded the American Warrior Initiative?
5: Yes, yeah, and you know it was initially founded to educate, inspire, and give back to our military. Um, and the educational component was really about educating civilians and and people in the workforce about what it, what it means to be a veteran, but not not only what it means, but what it means to hire a veteran and what qualities veterans can bring to the workforce uh, that that are exceptional. And so it it, it grew from there into a, a multi-million-dollar charitable organization, which is which was again never on my radar. But what started as a small organization that just helped give back to veterans in any way that we could has sort of blossomed into an organization that tries to get service dogs into the hands of our veterans as fast as possible.
1: Right, because ordinarily it, there's like a, a, a five to ten year waiting list for those dogs, yes. right?
5: Uh, yes. You know, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's so true and, it, and it's a travesty. You know, I've seen firsthand... When, when a veteran is paired with a, this, a young puppy and the puppy undergoes his training. But the, there is there is a legitimate, tangible bond that happens between veteran and dog, and you can see it happen. And it's so powerful. And, and these dogs have this healing qual- quality. It gives a veteran a sense that, that somebody always has their back. Right. And, and quite literally, I mean, I believe it saves lives.
1: Oh, I I believe so, too. I'm a big dog uh, person, so I know just what a difference they can make in somebody's life. And especially if, uh, you know, they've got nobody else. As you said, they've got someone who's always got their back, even if it's furry and has four legs. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's, an, ama- it's an amazing, amazing thing. You, I'm not making light of it because it's really amazing. And it's very expensive to train those dogs. I think like fifteen dollars to $25,000.
5: You, you got it. Yep, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and part of what we do is we partnered with a couple of great uh, nonprofits that help us service different geographic areas in, in the United States. So uh, all of these organizations are just fantastic. And what we focus on doing is having a look at each of their individual wait lists and just trying to diminish them as fast as we possibly can by getting rid of the financial question and the dollar amount question, because we'll come in and we'll fund the dogs and we'll fund the training. And and our organization is structured in a way that there's no bureaucratic red tape. It's just like if my if I or my co-founder believe that after a veteran has been vetted uh, and qualifies for the program, if we believe he's fit for a dog, he gets the dog and he gets it fast. And right. so. It's been so wonderful to be a part of that and see the healing effect that it can have on our nation's veterans that are quite quite honestly struggling
1: right. in a lot of ways. And, and it's not just dogs. I mean, you help with mortgages and, and just reintegrating into society. So if listeners want to find out more about the American Warrior Initiative, I know they can go to your website, um, which is official Sean Parnell and find out yep, more about at
5: Yeah, yep. or they can, go, Dot or they can go to the americanwarriorinitiative.com. Um and you can get all the information on our organization from there.
1: Okay. All right. So, um great work on that. I think it's awesome. And I know you love to surprise surprise these people in person. So that this must be very moving, I can imagine presenting these people with <laughs> with dogs like that.
5: It's it's pretty cool to be a part of. It it has you know, we get the veterans get the veterans permission and stuff like he he thinks he's coming out to a vet uh, an event to be honored so we're not like ambushing him on stage you know ambushing combat veterans that have ptsd is generally not a good thing it's generally not a good thing but um it it sort of has a move that bus type moment and a quality to it and and these veterans uh they're so appreciative and it's, it's such an honor to help them
1: right right and so let's talk about man of war because that's actually coming out i believe september 11th correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you just, you say you think of Man of War as Jason Bourne meets House of Cards, but um, yeah, go on, you, you tell us about it in your own words. No,
5: that's, 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 that's the best way I can explain it. And you know, for me, I grew up reading, I was a voracious reader as a kid. I grew up like Back to the Future and in Indiana Jones are two of my favorite movies. And I just think, you know, who Who is going to be the Marty McFly or Indiana Jones of of my generation, you know, of the next generation? And so I wanted to create an action hero that embodied the American, the greatness, really, of the American warrior ethos. And that that character is Eric Steele. And part of being an American warrior is not just destroying the enemy. Um, Actually, our primary mission in Afghanistan was taking care of the people that were caught in the middle. And... As an American soldier, and, and I myself in combat, I found myself having to get ambushed by an enemy that wanted to kill us in great numbers, and then an hour later, cradling a baby in a village. And so Eric Steele is a true believer, right? He, he's a character that, that believes he can make a difference and tries to save people and preserve innocent life. Um, but Man of War puts him in a really tough spot, and, and to where he, some, you know, sometimes in a mission, you can't save everybody. Right. And so... Uh, I hope that Eric Steele can be, you know, a, a, a hero that young people can read and aspire to be like, because he he's a he's a great guy. Right, he really is.
1: Right. So I know that your the platoon you were in is one of the most uh, recognized platoons, and uh, Eric Steele, your character is uh, an alpha in in this clandestine oper, operation operative um, called the program. Um, yes. So, how much I know that you've integrated some reality or some real stories into your novel, um, like what?
5: Well, well, it's a good question. I, I try to keep the tactical action, like what combat is like, try to make it as authentic as humanly possible. But I basically, I call it faction, um, a combination <laughs> of fact and fiction. You know, yeah. And try, try. So basically, what I did was. I created this clandestine world called the Alpha Program, and there are nine Alpha operatives, each responsible for a different geographic area of the globe, and they report directly to the president of the United States and respond directly. They they, they help the president when the president can't accomplish a mission with all-out war or diplomacy. So, of course, this is highly unconstitutional. It wouldn't be permissible in today's society, but it makes for some cool drama, uh, so when the president needs to put out a fire somewhere, he sends in an alpha. And Eric Steele is the youngest and most talented alpha in American history. And that's who the story follows.
1: Right, right. And
5: so I came up with this idea when I was in Afghanistan, thinking like, oh, my gosh, here we are. We're ready to go after this high-value target. We know he's in this compound right here, but we got to wait 48 hours to go get him so, because some general 3,000 miles away has to approve it. <laughs> like, if we could have <laughs> just got, gone and captured this terrorist right here right now the world would be a better place but we got to wait two days for approval and by the time we go on the mission he'd be gone already so that was that that was the inspiration behind why i created the, the alpha program an organization with no red tape and exists to inflict harm on the enemies of the united states of america
1: right right you list uh, i read some of your influences if you will um eight eight books you say that will keep you enthralled even if a bomb goes off and number one (laughs) number one was harry potter (laughs) but oh my
5: gosh they uh, they are the best books ever written and and understand that it is really hard to convince a bunch a bunch of american you know meat eaters the infantrymen (laughs) on the battlefield those books are good but i did it and we were having conversations on the front lines of Afghanistan about whether or not Snape was a good guy or a bad guy because The Deathly Hallows hadn't come out yet. And so, yes, by far the best books ever written. Mm. I'll take that to the grave. (laughs) I'll
4: take (laughs) that to the grave.
1: Well, the book is uh, Man of War, and as I said, it comes out September 11th. I know your other book, um, Outlaw Platoon, is required reading, where is it required reading i'm trying Oh, it's the infantry school it, at fort benning right the, yeah the military yeah, the academy at fort west benning? point
5: yes <laughs> yeah it's crazy like i'm telling you this like again writing was never one of those things that was ever on my agenda i never wanted to do it as when i was a kid um but it, it ha, it's required reading at west point i think they even have a three-credit class on that in a book called washington's crossing and i go to west point almost every year and speak to Juniors and seniors about to become newly commissioned first li- or newly commissioned second lieutenants, and it's it is just crazy how that book has got a foothold in the military community, mm-hmm. and I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. It's, and it's truly it's really really is an honor to to be a part of it.
1: Well, it's pleasure talking with you today, Sean. Uh, thank you for all that you've done and all that you're continuing to do to help other vets. Um, a final word you'd like to leave us with today.
5: If you know a veteran, just thank. Of course, thank them for their service, but just tell them that you're there if you need them. And if if you do that, you, you'll save lives, and that veteran will so much appreciate it.
1: And the website, the best website uh, where you can find out everything from here is official dot co. I have co here. Is it co or com?
5: Yeah, you can you can use either, but .co is the is the I've migrated to .co because I guess it's the cool thing to do.
1: Okay, so. very good. <laughs> so and I you can stay up and up with the <laughs> And people can find out more about the American Warriors uh, Initiative on, on that site, uh, officialshawnparnell .co. All right, thank you, yes. Sean, very much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. And you can find out more uh, about us, you can listen to uh, past podcasts at conversationslive.net. You can find me on Facebook at Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair and on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair. And uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Hi, this is Vicky St. Clair. If you have a business, service or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425 269 let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772.
0: Conversations Live with Vicki St. discusses issues that are important to you, like good health and well-being, finding a new job and building your business, overcoming life's big challenges and making sense out of chaos, and living with passion and joy. Join us Mondays at noon Pacific for Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. See conversationslive.net for show schedule and guest information.